Okay. I'll invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 15. And as we prepare to begin, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask his hand to be upon us as we open up his word today. Lord God, as we open your word, we do so um, in humble, great need for you to minister to us by your word. Lord, we pray that you would show us that which we need to see for our growth as your children, for our trust in you, for our growth and holiness for our obedience to all that you have set out before us as your people. And Lord, we pray that as we see perhaps difficult things to see, may we see these through the lens of the truth of who you are. And may we see these with right perspective, right understanding of who you are and who we are and of the power and the purpose by which we are your people and by which you set before us that which glorifies you in our lives and in our hearts and in our service to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was having lunch with Patrick at a uh, Brazilian barbecue place. And it wasn't one of those like fancy places that's $75, $80, a plate or anything like that. Uh, it was a much more uh, pedestrian type of venue. And uh, it was very, very good, though. It's uh, one of my go-to places. And uh, we were meeting there, and... Uh, Patrick had never been before, so I was trying to coach him through, okay, here's what you do. You get your plate of food, and you, here's, here's where all the good meats are, and over there are the salads and the greens and everything if you want to waste your time with those. And, um, and, and, but the, the, the problem is that you, the way that this place works is that you, have, you get a plate. You can get more if you like, but obviously more means more money. And so you get a plate, and you weigh, you, you load up your plate with all the food you want on it. You can load it with meats, greens, whatever. And then you weigh your plate, and you pay by how much your plate weighs. So I was coaching Patrick on you don't want to waste your time uh, on the greens. You don't want, you've got precious real estate on your plate, and you want to make sure to load it up with the good stuff. So that's what we did. Now, you might hear this, some of you might hear this and think that is dreadfully unhealthy. To go about your life in that manner, in, in eating in that manner, on loading up on the meats, loading up on the fried things, loading up on the starches, and neglecting the greens, neglecting the salads, neglecting the uh, necessary fruits and vegetables is a terrible way to go about life for your own health. And I would agree with you. But today we get to a subject in God's Word that I would argue for you, just like Stephen might not want the greens at the Brazilian barbecue place, we might not want this topic as we open up God's Word. That topic is the wrath of God. Now, 
what we want to fill our plates up with is God's love, God's compassion, God's grace, God's goodness, God's gentleness, God's mercy. And all of these are true. But let us be careful not to fill up our plates so much with what we want to think of God as that we actually lose sight of the fullness of who his word has revealed him to be. And I would argue before you that, that when we understand even the things like God's anger, God's wrath, the things that might be more difficult for us to understand or to wrap our minds around or to, to, to approach with our limited perspectives, that when we balance our plates of, of understanding of who God is outrightly, that will cause the love, the grace, the mercy, the kindness, the gentleness to taste all the more rich in that balanced diet of knowing God and who he is. So, today, we're going to put some greens on our plate. And we are going to see that God is dreadfully serious about destroying our pride and arrogance that dishonors him. And in this, may we hear the warning of his wrath. And press into Christ. Let me say this again. God is dreadfully serious. About destroying our pride. And our arrogance. That dishonors him. May we hear the warning of his wrath. And press in. To Christ. So having just come out. Of a prophecy. You you might remember back from two weeks ago. When Neil preached. A prophecy about the coming Emmanuel. Jesus Christ who would come and rescue his people. He would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And this, this promise of the coming Emmanuel uh, uh, was given after God had pronounced judgment on the people of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel, as a nation, as a people, they, they had war, they had strife with one another. Eventually they broke apart. Southern kingdom Judah, northern kingdom known as Israel. And so God has pronounced judgment, but then promise of mercy to Judah. And now he starts by pronouncing judgment to Israel, the northern kingdom. And a promise of grace and mercy will come beginning next week. But this week we see the judgment. We see the wrath of God on this. So what you're going to see in chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4, is a, 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 a poem but it's not a poem like two, like one star-crossed lover or one love-struck uh, individual would write to another uh, 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 whom their heart is fluttering for. It's a poem of God's wrath. It's a poem unlike perhaps any that you have ever read before. I don't know about you, but when I get angry, I don't write poetry. I fire off a quick email or a text message or just bottle those feelings up in my heart. Well, God sends a word of his wrath to the people of Israel. For the sake of time, we're not going to read through the whole section, but we're just going to take it step by step. And we're going to see four warnings for that which invites God's wrath. There's a danger in reading these things and saying, okay, if I do this, then God will come and wipe me out. 
You know, there's God speaking to the people of Israel who were a nation, who, who were his, his people that he had bought with his own, uh, out, out of his own uh, mercy and, and by his own strength, rescued them out of Egypt. And so the one thing that we see from Scripture is that it's always far more wise to read God's providence through the rearview mirror than through the magic eight ball looking ahead. So I don't want us to hear this and think, okay, if I do this, then this will happen. But let us see the warnings of his wrath and let us receive these as warnings and as greens that we ate, that we eat to spur us on in our growth as the people of God. So the first warning, beginning in verse 8 of Isaiah 9, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel at the time. Who say in pride and in arrogance. There's that pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Let's pause right there. So the Lord, the first thing he warns his people of is their pride and their arrogance. I don't know all the details of this calamity that has come, and come upon them. But you see verse 10, bricks have fallen. Sycamores have been cut down. Some form of, 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 of national hardship has come upon the people of Israel. Very possibly even by the disciplining, chastening hand of God upon his people. As they have departed from him and wandered away in their own arrogance against him. He has brought some form of chastening upon them to seek to bring them back to him. But look at what they say. Ah, the bricks have fallen. We'll rebuild with better stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. And so the warning that we receive here is simply a warning against prideful arrogance and trusting in ourselves and not in our God. A warning against prideful arrogance that discards and dismisses our God who sustains us day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. This is a shot across the bow of self-reliance and of great industrialness that we hold up culturally, we hold up societally, we hold up relationally as things to admire. Resiliency is a good thing. Determination is to be applauded. But resiliency and determination that does not sit under the authority of God and humble oneself under his word is not to be applauded, is not to be celebrated. It is to be repented of. I mean, think about this. Think about the the people of Ephraim and Samaria. They may have been walking around as calamity had come upon them. They may have printed out their Samaria strong shirts and been wearing them around to say, we will rebuild, nothing can stop us. But the problem is, and they're patting themselves on the back, and they're speaking words of affirmation to themselves, they did not hear the word of the Lord. And they did not hear the need to humble themselves under his authority. 
Winston Churchill wrote of the pride of powerful nations and failure to see folly of their pride and how it leads to destruction. After World War II and and the destruction that ravaged Europe and ravaged much of the world, in fact, writing on how the great democracies triumphed, Churchill wrote, how the great democracies triumphed and they were able to resume the follies which had nearly cost them their life. I don't know about you, but I am quite skilled in not learning a lesson the first time, second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time, seventh time, eighth time, ninth time, tenth time, and beyond. How many times do we need to be brought low to to then yield control and to submit ourselves before God? Next time you find yourself with some form of illness, some form of sickness, I would not say to say, oh, this is something that God has brought upon me for judgment for whatever sin I might be harboring in my heart, whatever distrust I might have in myself. But take it as an opportunity to humble yourself and to simply pray and remind yourself and ask God to remind you of the fact that He is God and that you are not. He is God and you are not. The next time life throws you a curveball. Don't say, okay, this is the opportunity I'm going to grab hold of, to, or, or this is, this is I'm, I'm going to dig my heels in even further in my, in my defiance against whatever may be against me. Take life not bouncing in the direction in which you want it to go as an opportunity to humble yourself under the authority of God. To simply sit and wait And hear from his word. Let's move on. So there is the pride of our arrogance. And self-reliance. God says in verse 11. The Lord raises the adversaries of raising against him. And stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east. The Philistines on the west. Devour Israel with open mouth. And then you see at the end of verse 12. For all this his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. That's going to be a familiar refrain through these four sections. This last line. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is outstretched, is stretched out still. Reminding us of, of God whose hand is just waiting, waiting to bring his wrath even upon his hardened and sinful people. Verse 13. The next thing. The people did not turn to him who struck them. Nor did they inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The second thing that we ought to hear a warning about is not only our pride and arrogance, but secondly, this collapse of the people of Israel can be found in the collapse of their leadership. Now, this is where it's a little different than us. National leadership and religious or spiritual leadership in Israel is kind of all tied up into one. They're a nation state and a religious people. Nationally, we can all look around and see the collapse of admirable leadership in in various spheres of life, whether it be the corporate world, whether it be governmental, whether it be many different spheres of life, and we can see how that is an evidence of a decaying culture. But 
Isaiah also ties this into the church. You see, he says, the prophet who teaches lies is the tell in verse 15. And then verse 16, those who guide the people, they've been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. May I encourage you to, as you pray for our country, as you pray for, you know, even those who are in leadership in the company you work in or in the organization you, are, you work in or, or whatever, pray for God to give admirable, wise, righteous, justice-minded leaders. But then also pray for myself, those whom the Lord would bring into elder leadership in our church. Pray for them as well. God says a sign of a decay of people is weak leadership. I was convicted by this as I prepared this week. Do you know why I was convicted? Because so often, frequently, in my own heart, it is easier to to turn away from a hard but necessary conversation to something more palatable, to something more easy. To not approach a brother or sister who I see wavering in their sin. To try to find the easy conversation over which there is shared ground. But Isaiah says this is a sign of God's judgment when the spiritual leaders of his people will not hold them accountable. Will not speak words of truth that they need to hear. And I would be neglecting my responsibility Why is it that I would so quickly run out into the street and even tackle my son to knock him out of the way of an approaching vehicle? And yet, I and so many other spiritual leaders would hesitate to run out into the street and try to grab hold of the brother or sister who is wandering away from the Word of God and His people. Pray for me in this. And us as a church, as a brother or sister or as a pastor or somebody, if they approach you over, over a, a concern that they have in regards to sin that they might see in your life, receive those words not as poison to be swallowed, but as a life-giving medicine that might taste bitter, but is good for your soul. Can we have that agreement together as a church and a people? And pray for that for future elders for our church as well. The Lord says that the leadership of a people declining is a grievance for a nation and by extension for a church. So let's move on. Well, you see, verse 17, the Lord does not rejoice over their young man. He has no compassion on their fatherless, on their father, their, the fatherless and the widows amongst them. Even the most vulnerable amongst them, they have been swallowed up by the leadership that has grown fickle. And has bent themselves to the will of the people. In fact, one more note on this. A thing to note as you read throughout the Old Testament. Is that oftentimes prophets of God were such outcasts amongst the people of God. Because false prophets had risen up. And false prophets, signs of false prophets were ones who would tell the people what they wanted to hear. And not what they needed to hear. And so Isaiah is such a is such a a distinct prophet in his time because he is telling people a word from the Lord and not a word from their own heart that they wanted to hear. So you read the end of verse 17. Everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. And then the Lord says, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. 
Let's read on and see the third warning that we must heed. And that is a warning of disobedience against God as we consider one another. A warning of disobedience against God as we consider one another. Verse 18, for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It it kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. What is happening here? A lot of vivid imagery. Basically, God is saying the people of Israel, none of them can get along with anyone. And not only that, not only can they not get along with people outside their midst, but they can't get along with people inside their midst. In our day and age, where everything is quite polarized, where everything is quite controversial, I have found that on, on, a, on a subject of great significance or of, of great, uh, at the forefront of, of, the, of the conversation of the day and age, uh, there are oftentimes things that are quite complicated that I, I will see one perspective and say, okay, I agree with this perspective on points A and B, but I don't quite following with point C and D, but actually I agree with the opposing perspective and how they see it in this way, and, and yet I don't follow exactly what they're saying here. And, and I find myself oftentimes divided, and oftentimes like, almost like a man without a camp uh, in, in regards to whatever the controversial subject is of the day. And what Isaiah is showing us is that this, this, this environment of just consuming one another in anger and consuming one another in vitriol is not a sign of a robust and healthy uh, 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 discourse. It's a sign of selfish social decay that leads to rot. And how oftentimes do we find this in the church? Or how oftentimes do we hear this warning in the life of the church? Do you see what he says uh, in verse 20? They, they slice meat on the right, they devour on the left, each devours the flesh of his own arm. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He is saying, in your desire to find conflict in, behind every nook and cranny, under every rock, in your desire to find disagreement and discord, and even to find con, uh, 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 argument with one another, even if it's an argument just done in good faith, or, or, or just done uh, uh, in a spirit of, of, of trying to find excitement, Isaiah is saying, you are chewing up the brothers and sisters that are around you for your own growth. It is as if you are eating your own arm and thus you will not be able to feed yourself later. Now we must be able to have disagreement. This is not a word that we never disagree with one another. But it's a word of recognition that we need one another for the sake of our growth. Do you recognize that the means by which God grows his people is through his people? And so a socially isolated people of Israel who all hated their neighbor. Oh, I hate Billy next door because he thinks this. I hate Susie at this house because she thinks this. I can't stand Tommy over over beside me because he has that uh, sign in his front yard. 
When we have grievance with everyone around us, not only in our neighborhood, but more importantly, in the neighborhood of our church, when we harbor grievance against every single person or even against just a multitude of people, we are not intellectually superior to those we harbor disagreement with. We just have hearts that are combative and do not trust the Lord and fail to see that the one that we may be pushing away today is the one that we might need to draw us close tomorrow. And this invites God's wrath. Verse 21, Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Lastly, Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 4. The final cause for God's wrath to come upon Israel is the injustice that has been created or committed against the poor and the voiceless. Verse 10, woe to those who decree iniquitous deeds or decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people from of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Pause right here. So God is saying, woe to those who take advantage of the weak amongst them. Who devour the widow. Who make the fatherless their prey. Take advantage of the orphan and the defenseless. Listen to what God says to them in verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come. From afar. To whom will you flee for help? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. This fourth warning of God's wrath is a warning against a self-assured abuse of others out of a sense of your own invincibility. Let's just say a self-assured invincibility that cares little for others. And God says, To those who would harm those who are lesser than them in their eyes. When the day of punishment comes, you who are mighty, you who have lorded over those who are weaker than you, you who have taken advantage of those whom you are more powerful than, when the day of my wrath comes, where will you turn? The warning here for us is, of course, a warning against any secret sin or harmful, damaging, disgusting relationship where you may be taking advantage of those who are under you. And if that is the case for you, repent, run, and find the justice that is needed for any wrongs that you have committed. Be willing to bring your sin to light 
and pursue the healing of those whom you have hurt. But the warning for us, if that is not the case with you, is a warning against a self-assured invincibility that fails to see that one day our health will decline. One day our bodies will weaken. And one day we will have nowhere to turn because all that we had has dried up and wasted away. And so let us be a people that begin practicing now clinging to the God who we say we will cling to when that day comes. Lord says to those who harm those who are defenseless, what will you do on that day of punishment? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains for you but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. Now this is one, let's pause. This is one that many of us would probably not have a problem with God's wrath. We want God's wrath upon the person trafficking young, innocent girls. We want God's wrath upon the one committing horrible, atrocious, or... or, or or, or propagating horrible, atrocious slave labor in our world. We want God's wrath upon those harming innocent children and hurting them in irreparable ways. We want that wrath. And we say, yes, Lord, bring it. But the warning that we must have is a warning against developing the same kind of heart of arrogance and invincibility in our lives. Not to the point where we may become slave drivers, but to the point where we may develop a mindset that says, even subtly and even under in the slightest hints of sound that we can't hear clearly, who is God? And I don't need Him. So may we not boast in our strength, in our wealth, in our might, in our power, but may we humble ourselves. Lest we hear the applause of all that we feel we have to be secure and proud of. And that applause be a siren song that leads us to turning away from God. There is great grace in immense weakness before God. There is great danger in unchecked power in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of your home. For all this, His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. So as we hear these warnings of God's wrath, now let us look to the means or the instrument of God's wrath as we conclude in chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. God says, and listen to this, as God promises to use the Assyrians as a means of His wrath upon Israel, and yet He promises to strangely also judge the Assyrians in their sin against Him. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, 
the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. So God, so God says, woe to Assyria. And then God says in verse 6, against a godless nation, that's Israel. Against a godless nation I send him, Assyria. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But then now listen as God says what Assyria is thinking. That's why God said, I'm sending Assyria to do this. Now listen to what Assyria is thinking in verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? And now... As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So Assyria says, yes, I am going to go rage down south and expand my empire. Those towns you see there, Kalno, Carchemish, Hamath, Arpad, Samaria, Damascus. It's like Assyria was north of Israel and Judah. And so these are towns that are just going south. It's like as if an army of Boston was going to move south and say, we, could, we conquered Providence. Next is Hartford. Next is New York. Next is Philadelphia. And then we will get to Washington, D.C. Our might expands with one more notch in the belt. Every, every, every rung we climb, every step we advance, who can stop us? And God says, Assyria, no. That is not what I have designed you for. And yet in the mystery of God's providence, that is how he will enact his wrath, his righteous wrath on Israel. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Do you see that? God says, okay, Assyria, I'm going to use you to punish, to punish those who have gone astray. But because you overreach, because you overstep, because your heart is towards your own conquests, punishment will then come upon you as well. For he says, verse 13, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. This is the king of Assyria speaking. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of my peoples or of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And then God just says in conclusion, after hearing the words of the king of Assyria, God says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God says, you are not but a tool in my hand. I will accomplish my purposes through you, and then I will bring my justice upon you as well. That is mind-blowing to consider. And yet it is strangely a familiar refrain that we hear throughout Scripture. And the most familiar place we hear such an account is where God accomplishes His divine, judging, 
even wrath-expending purposes. Yet, not towards the people of God, but towards the Son of God. Through an army that considered itself to be the mightiest in the world. And through an army through whom it felt as if it was just flexing its muscle. And yet, as Jesus Christ was crucified, enduring the wrath of God at the hands of the Roman Empire, he bore this cross of crucifixion not because he deserved the wrath of God for his sin. Jesus never had this sense that all of the anger of God was turned upon him because of his sin. But the anger of God was outstretched against him because of our sin. The wonder of the work of Christ is that he bore the fullness of God's wrath that was due upon us for our arrogance, for our pride for our dismissive unreliance upon God, for our vain attempts to glorify ourselves and make little of God, for all that we have done in opposition to God, Jesus Christ bore that wrath through God sovereignly using a foreign power. Let us humble ourselves and hear this warning of God's wrath and let us cling to Christ and know that as He bore our wrath in Him, we experience the love of God. We can have our plates full of the love and the grace of God all the more vividly when we recognize that once the judgment and the wrath of God rested upon us. It's the difference between sauntering into the presence of God as if we feel as if we ought to have a seat reserved for us at the table. And so we look with an eyebrow raised up in confusion when God challenges us to say and says, who do you think you are? And yet, when we recognize that we were rebels against God who have been adopted through Christ and been made sons and daughters, welcome to the feast and the bounty of His grace, that grace tastes a lot better, knowing that it was once wrath. Yet the one who seats us at the table of his grace has borne that wrath in our place. Let us thank Christ for his cross and hear this warning today. God, as we conclude today, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are humbled under your wrath, who are humbled under your might, and who 
acknowledge this and receive Your Word as a warning, but a warning that is a gift of mercy, lest we go astray. So Lord, help us, Your people, to hear this warning of Your Word that is exhibited in the people of Israel, whom You redeemed, who You parted the Red Sea to bring them out of Egypt, and yet centuries later they neglected and dismissed who You were. Help us hear this warning, lest we depart, unless the wrath of God that was exhibited upon Christ be turned towards us because we have turned away from Christ. So Lord, let us take refuge under Christ and under His cross. And we pray this in His name. Amen.